the constant reminder of not being valued in this country in my skin. So why should why should I look at this instance as as a patriot when we have never been valued as a citizen? Welcome to the Heart of the Matter in Black and White with Becky Holloway and Essence Rebels. As we kick off season two, we wanted to explore some hot topics and highlight the influence of race. All right, Becky, we are back and we are ready and excited to start season two. I am so excited. Yes, we are so appreciative of so many of our listeners that have reached out to me personally, and I know to you as well. Like, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? Well, here we are. (laughs) We are back. We are back, baby. We needed to take a breath. There was a lot going on in both of our lives, and a lot has happened in the country. And we, like we we started with like a not too long list and then we just keep adding things. So this could be a long episode. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Exactly. Okay. So today we talked about wanting to dip into some hot topics or current events that would allow us to tap into a lot of different areas that brings about the topic of race in the news. 2020 was a long year and 2021 doesn't look like it's going to be any shorter. So the first topic we wanted to discuss was politics. And I am so honored and happy and just filled with all kinds of emotions that we now have the first Black female vice president of the United States of America. That's amazing. Let those words just simmer in your spirit. It gives me chills. <laughs> yes. And, and one thing that you and I constantly that constantly comes up is your advocacy for females and my advocacy for black females and the black community in general and that intersectionality continues to rise and Kamala Harris highlights that through this accomplishment like no other and I just go ahead no she's just a, a remarkable individual and I remember chatting with you about her a while ago, like back when she was um, in the mix to run for president. And I remember talking with you about some of my reservations about her, but she has won me over. She really has. I, I've kind of been on a journey about it. How, how does it feel for you? Like it's, it's got to feel amazing. <sighs> so I remember the day when the, the votes finally were finalized and both her and Joe Biden were on the ticket. They were going to lead our country and looking at Evan, my two-year-old now two-year-old and just thinking that I can honestly say to you, baby, that you can be anything. Mm. And that feeling was just overwhelming, brought tears to my eyes. And of course she's looking at me like, whatever you say, mom. <laughs> but but there, that, that moment also brings about the, the fact that we may not have to, we, we may not just be an exception anymore. She mo- like she keeps saying, Kamala Harris keeps saying this and it always resonates with me. She says, I may be the first, but I will not be the last. Yeah. And I pray for a day that my children do not have to see a last or not, don't have to see a first anymore. And that yeah. just, just becomes the norm for them. That's what I'm looking forward to. Just yeah, I, normalized. I'm trying to remember if it was your daughter, if it was somebody else um, that I saw posted on Facebook. They had a, a a shirt that said, "My VP looks like me." Was that was that you and Evan? That was Evan and I, yeah. and my mom has a shirt as well. Yeah, I I just loved that. Um, I think Ibram X Kendi also like his daughter. Uh, he, you know, he um, is a very prolific writer, very much in the news right now. And I, last year I read his book stamped from the beginning and I know his daughter had a similar shirt. I remember seeing it like on Instagram or something and I just like kind of blew me away. And here I am, I just turned 40, um, like a month and a half ago and finally getting to see a woman in the white house. Right. Um, and you know, it'll, I think it'll just be a matter of a few years now before we see a woman, you know, actually as commander in chief. And that just the intersectionality, exactly as you described that 
it was such a big day for women. It was such a big day for black women. Uh, it was just, you know, it was awesome. So very excited to see where this goes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really encouraged to see the types of people that are being put on the cabinet and the diversity that's there. Um, I, I really, I'm, I'm hopeful. Like I, sometimes I, I don't want, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Right. And, and be like, Oh, all the work's done. Cause it's not done. But I feel like we're taking a little bit, we're, we're, we're headed a little bit more in the right direction right now. And as I love to say that it's an indescribable feeling for you to see someone that looks like you in a position of power. Yes. The, the way that that motivates you to, to dream higher than you ever have been able to do before is something that you can't put into words. Yeah. So until you walk in those first, that person's shoes, until you feel this feeling, you can't put it into words. Representation matters. I've heard you say it. I've heard other people say it. I say it myself. Um, seeing people that look like you in, in positions of power, um, doing amazing things, it gives you inspiration and it gives you um, something to work towards and it makes you truly feel that it is possible that, as you said, you don't have to be the first. This path has, is being um, forged by those who have gone before and you have others you can look to um, and admire. Yes. So um, after talking about that greatness, <laughs> yeah. so talk about some madness. Next up, um, yeah. So something, something kind of crazy happened right after the first of the year. And I know it may feel at this point like uh, it's, I guess it's almost been about two months now, but it, I still think about it regularly. And, and there's hearings going on right now about it, the insurrection at the Capitol. You know, a couple of things stick out to me with regard to this. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think you and I have really discussed it in depth, with, maybe a little bit, but I, I'd love to kind of hear what what was going through your mind while it was happening. I think you and I had some different reactions, but um, one of the things that I couldn't help but notice, not just in the way the insurrection was being portrayed in the media, but just kind of like what I was seeing on social media as well, was how different um, these mo this mob, this, this crazy group of people was being treated compared to Black Lives Matter demonstrations and protests that had occurred elsewhere throughout the country. And that the stark contrast there, like I, I, I just, it's all I could think about as I was watching police officers basically like move barricades and let this crazy mob into the Capitol. And as I watched the entitlement of the individuals who were in the Capitol and ransacking offices and rifling through the contents of desks and, you know, desecrating the space that has so much history and so much meaning, you know, seeing the, the Confederate flag flown for the first time in our Capitol, like it just turned my stomach. It was disgusting. Um, and I remember watching like in horror, because when I, I, I want to say it was like mid afternoon when I became aware of it and I'm working and, trying to watch it half, you know, on one of my other monitors. And I'm I, like, I, I couldn't focus on my work. I just, my heart was like racing and I was, I was fearful. Like I didn't, and I, what I couldn't understand is why are they not doing something to these people? Where is the pepper spray? Where are the rubber bullets? Where are the, you know, the riot police? What's happening? This is a riot. You could, you could see it um, attacking the press, breaking their, their camera equipment and, you know, I, I just, it was, it was so, um, so disheartening, but I feel like when I talked with you, maybe you weren't that all that surprised by it. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Hmm. Patriotism has always challenged me as an African-American in this country, because I haven't, I don't feel that I've found my place in it. I don't feel that the black community has a place in this country. So it's difficult to watch the insurrection, for example, and feel like, how dare they destroy 
our country's capital and everything that we stand for. And when there's nothing that we can hold as honorable that this country has truly done for us as African-Americans. So it's hard to watch the insurrection and feel like you're destroying our flag, you're destroying our Capitol building versus the constant reminder of not being valued in this country in my skin. So why should why should I look at this instance as as a patriot when we have never been valued as a citizen mm. of this country? And the the one point that you brought about is frankly Becky if that were a group of black individuals in that mob, they would have painted the streets with red. Yes, they would. And everyone knows that fact. Yes. And that is the part of of racism that the biggest racists still deny. Yeah. And and that is to that's the core that you and I have been trying to get to on first you, you, you can't be in denial of what is happening. And if you are in denial, then then how racist are you really? Like you, even more than you're willing to even admit to. Yeah. So, so they're all my thoughts that go through my mind when I watch just the, the whole, this whole election year was absolutely something that I don't think many people have ever seen in their lives, let alone for it to be concluded with such greatness from Kamala Harris being elected and then watching what they have done and who they are now appointing and just this seeing the White House turn into a house full of color, Mm. that has been phenomenal. And then watching that insurrection, just watching it like, yep, we're not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yep, Yep. here we go again. Yeah. I, I mean, I do wonder if maybe some of my shock and dismay is just kind of the, you know, the, the veil is still coming down from my eyes. Do you know what I mean? And it's a process. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't have your lived experience. I, I have a different one. And so I, I will see these things differently, but it was really important. I think for you to share that with me, that, you know, my America, meaning you essence, essence's America is different than Becky's America. We live in different countries, even though it's the same physical space. Right. And you, so I, I, I try to stay away from speaking for the entire black community because I have no right to do that. Sure. <laughs> so I will speak for myself that it, it is not that I don't want to belong to this country, right? I, I want to claim it. I want to say that I am a, a patriot of, of United States of America. And I'm not saying that I'm not, but I want to be able to say that proudly. Mm. But after years of watching and feeling and being a part of the disrespect, the pain, it's hard to, to do it. It's hard to just say, okay, Joe Biden's in, Kamala Harris is in, I'm all in now. You, you still have to protect yourself and protect your heart and protect and, and be knowledgeable and not forget the things that have been done. And just hope, like you said, all we can do is hope now that these changes that we're watching unfold are for the best and that they're going to be long lasting. Yeah. And, and be like constant students. I, I would say this for all, all the white people listening, like, you need to be a, a constant student of this subject and, and constantly be questioning your automatic assumption about something because more than likely you've been socialized into thinking the way you think and you need to question that. Right. Yep. Transitioning into our next topic, I think it goes smoothly when you talk about the distrust and the pain that has been embedded in the black community when you talk about healthcare and going through COVID, right? Horrible, horrible, crazy year mm. for everyone on every single level, whether they want to admit it or not. Babies are affected by this pandemic. 
elderly, every single person has been impacted in some way by this virus. And now that the vaccine is out, that brings up again, the distrust that the black community has and the fear that we have about vaccines and about medicine in general. And you and I covered that when we talked about, when we discussed it on our racism in medicine episode. And I think that, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, Dr. Eugenia, Eugenia South, she's a black female assistant professor for emergency medicine at UPenn. I think she captured something I had been feeling and trying to say. Now she's a, a black doctor And she said that at first she was skeptical of getting the COVID vaccine for many reasons that several Black Americans are fearful and distrusted, and we can get into that. And then her mind was changed, but she made, she was very intentional to say this, and I'm going to read what she said. She said, let's normalize hesitancy to take a new vaccine. Shaming people who have questions will not encourage uptake. Skepticism is especially salient for Black people for whom centuries of mistreatment and harm from systems meant to serve and protect have engendered mistrust. That I could not have said it better. That's exactly what I keep saying because you you have many different sides right now, Becky. You have the medical side, right? So people that 100 believe in science, believe in medicine are like, what do you mean? This is one of the greatest vaccines ever invented. Get the shot. This is our only way. It's our only sense of hope. But then you have people who sit in a room with a doctor and are scared to tell them what's really going on because they're fearful that the person that's supposed to heal them is going to judge them and mistreat them. So having that type of feeling and then being inside of the pandemic and living that and and everything that that involves, Becky, you and I have shared our struggles and our challenges throughout this whole year. And think about how that is magnified for someone that's dealing with those fears and dealing with other types of things that other types of struggles that we do not, that our privilege allows us to not have to endure. So there, there is something, it should not be ignored. It should not be, you shouldn't be frustrated. I've met medical professionals and doctors and family members that are frustrated when their friends and family do not want to get the vaccine. That is, your frustration is not going to drive them to change their mind because that is years of pain. And I also think there's a, there's a part of control in this. So hear me out. I think that when you have been, mistreated for so long that, and, and then mistreated for so long, and there is a glimmer of hope or a glimmer of opportunity, let's say. You are so, the, the pain runs so deep that if you have the ability to control this decision because everybody else has been controlling you, your oppressor has been controlling you for so long, then I'm going to stand my ground and make this decision myself because this is the first decision that I'm able to control. Mm. And I don't care what you tell me is good. Is this, you, You've told me other things have been good and I haven't trusted and I, and I shouldn't have trusted that. So for me to be able to make the decision about what goes into my body, I am going to make that decision myself. I think that control again, plays a role in this decision and, us trying to, and anybody trying to combat that with saying that they don't have the right to do that, or they don't have, um, that their decision is not the smartest decision, that's not going to help this situation. All you can do is educate, answer questions, and respect everyone's decision and how they would like to move forward with this vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that everyone or, you know, a, a large majority of the population participating is going to be a really important part in ending the the pandemic or or making it what I've read is called endemic, right? So where it's just like the way the flu is in our community um, instead of the way it is right now as a, a global pandemic. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I I do hear people, um, and it may be different people, but I you know some of these like anti vaxxers that's kind of its own contingent of people 
who are, you know, believe that vaccines cause, you know, autism or, or whatever, right? I've, I hear, you know, one of the, one of the things I know you addressed in the town hall that you ran on, on the vaccine, which was so helpful, you know, it, it affects fertility or it may affect fertility. There hasn't been enough time gone by and I'm trying to get pregnant. So I don't know if I want to get the vaccine. Like these are real conversations I've had with people. Right. Right. Um, and which I like on the one hand, I, I do understand the fear, but on the other hand, like I also, I think about, well, you can't get pregnant if you're dead, you know, like that's just kind of a fact. So I don't know it, this is, this is a really tough one. And I, I do get that in communities of color, there has been such um, abuse in the medical community. And so there is a lot of distrust um, and the facts speak for themselves. Cause the next thing we want to talk about is life expectancy, right? And it's dropped, it's dropped for everyone, but it's dropped most for black Americans. So getting back to the vaccine though, I think, I guess, I guess a question, you know, I would ask you is what, like, what do you think will help make a difference to, so that individuals feel empowered to make the decision, but that they also feel comfortable that, yes, I can get this vaccine and, and be part of the solution to this pandemic. I think it takes time and mm. quality time. I think that, and, and everyone would say in the medical world, well, we don't have that. Okay, mm. well, that, that's what it's going to take. And quality time in the sense of coming to, so so right now, there are many different campaigns going on, right? So you have many, many different politicians that are trying to help their communities and they're sending vaccines to churches and different things, black churches and different things like that. But if the only time I see you hmm. is during a time where there is something that going on that is highly publicized and frankly, COVID and COVID, the COVID vaccine is highly political. If, the, if that's the only time I see you again, why should I trust you? And then after this whole, after COVID goes away, because it will eventually go away, I don't see you again. So it's not, it's quality time and commitment to, to me in my healthcare, in my community, show me more, show me more care than during the time that it matters for your campaign. Mm. Yes. Don't, don't just come when it's convenient for you come to me at all the time even after this is, after this is over come come see come talk to the community about different healthcare situations come talk to us about what do we need how you can help all year long yeah. not just now yeah not when you need something from me yeah so life expectancy um, is down a full year for all Americans but it dropped by two and a half years for Black Americans. And I was, I was going through this data. Um, it was a, an article on pbs.org. And I just was like aghast as I was reading it. So this is what the article says. It's, this is further down into the article itself. About This is where they're talking about worsening disparities. So communities of color have suffered disproportionately throughout the pandemic. And these latest numbers further illustrate the magnitude of those disparities. Reflecting the many ways racial inequality in the US has been highlighted over the past year, the life expectancy gap between black and white people has also widened. As one example, while the life expectancy of a white man dipped by eight tenths of a year during the first six months of 2020, three years were shaved off the life of a black man. Think about that. So eight tenths of a year for six months of 2020 for white men, three years for black men. Like that's it right there in a nutshell. That is the two different Americas that we live in. Wow. And it has not dropped that low since 1942 during World War II when the American lifespan dropped by 2.9 years because of that war. And this life expectancy rate, is this based on health? It is based on the number of deaths in the last year compared to the year prior. Okay. Death, not, it doesn't have to be, um, 
natural causes. It, this is like total death. Gotcha. All death rate. Yep. Yeah. It makes clear sense to me. Yeah. Which with the only differentiator being this year, we were in a pandemic last year. We were not hmm. crazy. Absolutely crazy. And it, it lines up though oh, wow. with everything we talked about last season in the, in the medicine healthcare episode. And as we already know, the reasons for this are so complicated. And I sit here and I look at these numbers and I'm like, why is COVID hitting the black community harder than it is the white community? I've even heard, I've seen it read, or I read in, in some news um, outlets, there are some who are literally saying this is really a, a, a genocide of people of color right now you know, taking different areas of the country where, you know, something, I think DC was an example, something like, you know, 85% of the people who died of COVID in say like the last two months were, you know, black or Latino, which meant, you know, that only 15% were white. Like that's crazy considering white people wake up, make up so much more of the population. Like it's just, it's insane. Right. But if you think about the things that help you to survive or um, not catch this virus at all are things that are extremely difficult to do in the black community. For instance, you have to stay six feet apart, right? Yeah. Think about the close proximity of the communities of primarily black communities. Like yeah. think about that. There, we got, you got row houses, you got the, like that. That's not necessarily something that's easy to do when you live in that environment. Yeah. If you're I mean, in an apartment complex and you're touching doorknobs and railings and things that lots of other people are touching. Yeah, right? And also you have to go to work. You have to make money to, to support your family. So being right. out of work is not even an option. So you have to go around people around the public every single day. So there's another avenue for you to get the virus. So not being able to socially distance, not having the money to, to, to ensure you get the healthcare you deserve if you do get sick, not trusting the healthcare you do have if you do get sick. Right. So all of those different factors play into why those numbers make sense. They right. should not be that way, but they make sense. And the the kinds of jobs that allow you to, you know, sit behind a computer and work from home, you know, probably I I'm I'm going to guess are are disproportionately, you know, favoring white people. Right? So people yep. who have to, you know, drive buses and, you know, work in hospitals and, you know, clean schools and things like that. Like this is there's going to be a disparity here. In, in the types of jobs where you have to physically be present versus those where you can safely work from home and insulate yourself from the disease that's out there. Right. Yeah. Sad, sad reality yeah. for Very sad. And I, you know, I wanted to go back to one thing we did, um, we did skip over in the politics section. So this was just in, um, as of Monday here in New Jersey, we both live in New Jersey. Um, the, the New, Jer New Jersey schools, so Phil Murphy just signed into law that New Jersey schools must now teach diversity and inclusion as part of NJ student learning standards, which I thought was interesting. And I, you know, on the, on the face of it, I'm like, that sounds great. Awesome. Right. And then I, you know, I, I pulled up the bill. It's A4454. Um, I'll read it to you. And I, I want to get your reaction because you know, the devil's always in the details, isn't it? So an act concerning diversity and inclusion instruction in school districts and supplementing chapter 35 of title 18A of the New Jersey statutes, be it enacted by the Senate and General Assembly of the state of New Jersey, beginning in the 2021-2022 school year, each school district shall incorporate instruction on diversity and inclusion into in an appropriate place in the curriculum for students in grades kindergarten through 12 as part of the district's implementation of the New Jersey student learning standards. The instruction shall highlight and promote diversity, including economic diversity, equity, inclusion, tolerance, and belonging in connection with gender and sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, disabilities, and religious tolerance. Examine the impact of the unconscious bias and economic disparities 
um, and economic disparities have at both an individual level and on society as a whole and encourage safe, welcoming and inclusive environments for all students, regardless of race or ethnicity, sexual and gender identities, mental and physical disabilities and religious beliefs. The commissioner of education shall provide school districts with sample learning activities and resources designed to promote diversity and inclusion. This act shall take effect immediately. So, I mean, on the face of it, it sounds good, but I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling a little ambivalent about it. What, what do you think, Essence? The last part that you read said that they will be providing examples. That's what it said here, that the commissioner of education will provide sample learning activities and resources designed to promote diversity and inclusion. I don't know. The first, I think in the first couple of sentences, you said something about appropriate right? You must find the appropriate place to incorporate yes. this. That, that, so as many bills are, is this a bill or, right? Yeah, it was a bill, right. And, and so now as it's many bills into law. Yeah. As many bills um, do, it's very gray. Yeah. And democracy can be very, um, always trying to find the sweet spot to not sound like you are mandating people to do anything we want to be a, a government of of choice and empowerment and not dictatorship so phil murphy your job is hard i will definitely say that i think it's i think it's a start i think the man is trying to do something but at the end of the school year come next june it's going to be very difficult to separate the schools that really took this bill to heart and tried to, to transform a movement versus the ones that were just trying to check the box. Right. So that, that would be my fear, but look, I, I think that a lot of things you have to start somewhere and hopefully this is not just a bill he put into place and he's done with it. Hopefully after year one, he goes back to it and sees how, what the results were and thinks about amending it. That would yeah. be my hope. I would definitely have liked to see something about kind of measuring and evaluate, evaluating the success of these programs. I, I also think that it's got to go further than just teaching it in your curriculum. It's got to, you, you've got to, it's all about systems, right? Systemic racism, racism is about the systems that keep racism in place. And education is a system. We had an entire episode on racism in education. And, you know, it's everything from what, what do your administrators look like? Are they a bunch of white men? Is that, is that who, who the administrators of your school are? What do the teachers look like? Do you, I mean, I literally the other day was showing my daughter, my sixth grade daughter, uh, this teacher that I follow on Instagram, she does these hilarious class videos um, where she's like acting out, the, you know, it's kind of like little skits about the funny things her students say. She's a black woman. I believe she lives in the South somewhere. She's got a, like a Southern accent. She is hilarious. I, I love these videos. I was showing her a couple of them because I thought I was, they were funny. And she looked at me, she goes, you know, I've never had a black teacher. And I was like, what? And she said, yeah. I've never had a black teacher. And I was like, are you serious? Like, think about that. I mean, there are a lot of children of color in my kid's school. And that means that, you know, all the way up through sixth grade somehow, like there's no representation among the teachers, right? So what, what are we doing about that? What are we doing about the school board? I like that, Becky. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it definitely goes deeper than teaching it um, because it all goes back to, again, who's teaching it? You had a whole story that you shared with me where the teacher of your child was racist. Yes. And then, so, so you're mandating people that don't even, that frankly are going to just check this box to teach diversity and inclusion. So I agree with you there. And it sounds like what you're, what you're saying is um, something that we'll get into when we talk about sports, race and sports, the Rooney rule that the mm. NFL has. So the Rooney rule is a policy that requires every team with a head coaching position that's available to interview at least one diverse candidate, one or more diverse candidates. And I could see this 
creeping into education and other systems everywhere because there's other ways to get around this too, right? Like, okay, let me just check this box, get this candidate. And when I have never, I do not have any intentions on hiring them. That's one part of it. But if this began to every, every position that's open in the education system, especially on the higher levels, they have to consider more diverse candidates. And I think it also goes back to your point of any policy, any goal you set should always be measurable and there should be some accountability for it. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Let's get into some, some fun talk, I guess, until racism comes back along, right? a <laughs> topic of entertainment supposed to be fun or entertaining and the bachelor controversy yes <laughs> i am not a bachelor watcher now sometimes it ends up on my tv when nothing else is on i haven't really watched any of it but i i know the premise i know what happens and i've seen some of the highlights well now there's a big highlight and <laughs> the host is going to be replaced and I'm going to let you talk about all about who's going to be replaced by, because that's one of our favorite people. Yeah. So the host, Chris Harrison, was interviewed by the former bachelorette, and he supported one of the current contestants' previous racial behaviors back in her college days. Right. Basically, Chris Harrison is saying, well... Maybe it was acceptable in 2018. It's just not acceptable in 2021. And and Rachel responds and says, it should never be acceptable. And yes. she's absolutely right. It should never be acceptable. Yes. So what are your thoughts on that? And let's talk about who the new host is going to be. So the, 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 the conversation, which I finally read today. I, like I kind of knew the background that you just described, but I didn't hear the back and forth. I want to read it real quick because um, Rachel Lindsay, who is the the host, the, the correspondent on Extra, who is doing the interviewing, boy, was she on point. And I, I've seen her uh, in other things. And I just, I think she's so sharp. But so this is, this is how it went down. So early, I'm, I'm reading from a CNN article. Earlier this week, Harrison told extra correspondent and former star of The Bachelorette, Rachel Lindsay, that Kirkconnell, that's the contestant, Kirkconnell's pictures were a long time ago and spoke out against cancel culture. Quote, I saw a picture of her at a sorority party five years ago, and that's it. Like, boom, Harrison said, adding, I'm like, really? Lindsay replied, the picture was from 2018 at an Old South antebellum party. That's not a good look. Harrison replied, well, Rachel, is it a good look in 2018 or is it not a good look in 2021? Because there's a big difference. It's not a good look ever, Lindsay said. Amen. That was what she should have said. If I went to that party, what would I represent at that party? And he responds, you're 100% right in 2021, Harrison then said. That was not the case in 2018. And again, I'm not defending Rachel. I just know that I don't know, 50 million people did that in 2018. That was a type of party that a lot of people went to. And again, I'm not defending it. I didn't go to it, end quote. So first of all, he is defending it. The fact that you're playing devil's advocate, that is a defense, you are defending it. And you're basically saying that in the vast amount of time that has gone, gone by since 2018 to 2021, and, and let's be honest, we're two, we're a month and a half into 2021 at the point that this came out. This was February 14th. So we're barely into 2021. You're acting like, you know, centuries have gone by, right? We're so different in 2018. If you had asked me in 2018, if, if somebody should be going to a party like that, I would have been like, no, that's disgusting, right? It's not like all of a sudden everybody woke up in 2021 and realized that stuff like that is totally unacceptable. So the good news is that the new host, at least for the end of the show, is going to be our man, Emmanuel Acho, which I was just, when I saw that, Woo! I was so excited because that man is incredible and has in many ways been part of the inspiration behind this podcast. So, you know, he started with this, um, the series of videos, uh, difficult conversations with a black man and 
there's actually uh, one of the episodes I haven't watched yet where he, he sits down and he talks to an entire police force. I don't know if you've seen that one, but wow, I can't no, I wait not. to watch it. It's a, it's a white police force that does policing somewhere in California where something like only 3% of the, the town population is black. So I, I just know he will handle it with such grace and thoughtfulness. He's so, um, he, he's just such a great force in, in, in this cause, the, the cause of racial justice. I love his perspective. I love his empathy, his kindness, his eloquence. There's just so much about him that I appreciate and have learned from personally. And I, I'm just, I'm very excited by this. And I hope this is a permanent change because I never liked Chris Harrison. And this was just the cherry on the Sunday for me. <laughs> yeah, I am just so, so proud of the platform that Emmanuel Acho is, is building upon yes. here. And I'm just seeing him begin to, um, be appreciated and highlighted in many different areas. He actually popped up on a virtual conference I was attending at work. So he, he's, his voice is being heard and I really do. I can't wait to see what greatness he continues to produce. I love it. And Kai, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, maybe one day he'll be a guest on our show. How amazing would that be? One can only hope our humble little podcast. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we'll get those connections. That would be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> so I wanted to, before we leave this topic, I wanted to talk about Matt James. So Matt James is the current bachelor and yes. I think he's about to choose the final contestant, which we, we think we know who it is. So he makes a comment in this article about the entire Chris Harrison controversy and he says, and I'm pulling this particular part out. He says, I need to reevaluate and process what my experience on The Bachelor represents. Mm. Not just for me, but for all the contestants of color. And I'm going to go back to a theme I continue to talk about since the day we started this podcast. That that's a heavy burden to bear. Yeah. Think about the gravity of, of his position and why he feels that way. No one should have to carry that, Becky. Yeah. Why should he have to feel like I'm on this show representing for this whole race because I'm the first. Again, that is the first phenomenon. That's what I'm going to start calling it. The first phenomenon makes you feel like you have to carry the weight of the world. So yeah. stop making us the first and let us not be the last. And hopefully people don't have to continue to carry this burden. Well, isn't this what we talked about in the episode on white privilege, right? Having to carry the weight of your entire race, representing the entire race, is part of not having privilege. When you don't go out and serve as a representative for everyone with the same skin color, that is privilege. Amen. Yep. Mm. Yeah, he's in a, he's in a tough situation. And, and boy, is this something you don't want to have to live out publicly, you know, like, right. yep. you know, if, if this is something, cause I think the assumption right now is that he picked this Kirkconnell woman, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gave her the final rose. Um, and, you know, I think through the grapevine there's, I mean, we don't know, right. It hasn't aired, but they're saying that they've subsequently broken up. We don't, if that's true, we don't know why right. it's all speculation at this point, but assuming let's say they, that he did pick her and that they are still together. You can imagine that, that that's a, you know, if you find out this type of information, first of all, what a weird way to find out information about someone who's supposed to be your partner. And, and, you know, when you find this information out, like, isn't that something you want to be able to, to deal with privately with that person and, and talk with them about it? And, you know, I, I believe in redemption. I believe people change. I've seen myself change. I've seen people around me that are close to me change. Like, I don't believe this. I, I'm not here to condemn Kirkconnell at like in this moment today, I think what she did then was obviously wrong, but it, that doesn't mean she's not a work in progress and, and can't acknowledge like, wow, that was a really, really awful thing that I did. It was really racist. And I need to address like what was going on for me that I thought that that was at all. Okay. But the fact that he has to live that out publicly, ugh, I, that I don't envy that. But that's also the reality of reality TV. True. Matt James signed up for this to to publicly put his heart on display. If that if there is if there is um, 
if this show is genuine, right? Because the, the premise is I'm coming on the show to find, I'm a, I'm a bachelor, I'm single, and I'm coming on the show to find my fiance. Mm-hmm. And if that is true, that's what he signed up for. He's, it's, it's, I, there are still things about my husband that I don't, that I still, I'm still learning. I'm continuing to learn about this man. So to expect that he is going to learn and know every single thing about the people that he, the, the women that he's meeting and engaging with on this show, that that's a false reality. Yeah. That, that's a fair, but to that's find a this point. out, that's the same. That's a shame to find this out about yeah. somebody that you love and you have to go through it publicly. Yes. It, it's, it's very sad that he has to go through it like this. Yeah. And I'm really tired of this whole, like the, the counter reaction to cancel culture. Like that's an entire separate discussion, I guess, cancel culture, but like dismissing uh, a valid point because it's, you know, supposedly part of cancel culture. That's ridiculous. That's a cop-out. You need to deal with the issue at hand. Is it legit? Like, is this a legit issue? And I, I, I think, I think that this is very problematic. This is a, this is a real issue. So. Yeah. And this continues to, to creep into other topics, right? Just like this. If we talk about and Jemima, them saying that her face and the um, her attire does not represent, it, it's a racist representation. And there are other examples. You talked about Dr. Seuss. Yes. So I'll, uh, I know you wanted to read that excerpt, but basically Dr. Seuss is canceling, no longer um, pub, uh, publishing six different titles because of, because they don't represent what the, what the company wants to represent anymore. And it didn't say just because of race, it, it said in general. So I will let you read that because I think that many of the changes that are happening and marketing uh, schemes that are changing are not are being blamed on quote unquote cancel culture. But when you know better, you do better. And if yes. you want people, and if you expect companies to sit in okay, I know that these six books are racist or I know these six books do not represent what we want to represent anymore. So it, it just happened to, to flow after, 20, after the events in 2020. So what? At least it happened. And at least they, they saw the light and they want to change it. And to just sit on those books knowing that they don't, that, that they don't represent what they, what their mission and their values are about. This doesn't make sense to me. And I know there are several different perspectives, but please read the excerpt. Yeah. So this was a statement that was put out yesterday, March 2nd, which um, is um, Dr. Seuss's birthday. And it um, typically this week, um, you, you probably know now with having a young son in school, you know, this is read across America week which, you know, is, is always a nod to Dr. Seuss. Um, and so the statement said, today on Dr. Seuss's birthday, Dr. Seuss Enterprises celebrates reading and also our mission of supporting all children and families with messages of hope, inspiration, inclusion, and friendship. We are committed to action. To that end, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, working with a panel of experts, including educators, reviewed our catalog of titles and made the decision last year to cease publication and licensing of the following titles. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, Miguel Agat's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. These books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. First of all, I love this statement. Um, I love it because it, it is proactive, not reactive. It, this is not a, oops, you know, Seuss Enterprise, Dr. Seuss Enterprises got caught with something, their hand was slapped and they had to put out a reactionary press release saying, you know, we feel so bad and we've learned from this and we're sorry if we've caused you pain. How many press releases have you seen like that? How many statements have you seen like that? This was them stepping forward on their own saying, listen, we control the Seuss catalog and we don't, we do not believe that these books are consistent with our mission as Dr. Seuss Enterprises. And so we're not going to publish them anymore. No one's mandating it. No one's telling us we decide because we can, and we're making this public to honor, you know, the, the man who wrote these books, 
you know, as as you may be aware, he he originally, uh, you know, wrote some or you know published some of these problematic books, but he later was part of the civil rights movement, and so he obviously evolved as a human in his thinking, and so they believe this is in the spirit of who he was as an author, uh, you know, as an educator, as someone who loved um, bringing joy to families and children, and. I love how they just talk about all children and all families and supporting everyone. I, I just, I love this statement. What, what do you think? Again, I, so I just recently, well, it just happened, right? I was about to say, I just recently read it. No, it just happened. And I wasn't sure if it was responsive. Like, did someone say something to them about these books and that made them respond through the statement? So hearing you say that you don't, you don't think that that is their angle, that's awesome to hear. You do want to hear companies being proactive and just taking a, another look at their entire um, catalog in this instance, but just everything that you're putting out there and reevaluating it. Yeah, and I, and I think that when it comes to the point of view of they're just doing that because George Floyd's murder. They're just doing that because every other company, like they're doing it. That's the point. The point is they're doing it. But the question is, will they continue to do it? Yes. Because there's going to come a point when what's popular right now, I can't believe I'm saying that, what's popular right now, to not be racist, to be anti-racist is popular right now. There's going to come a point where it's no longer popular. Yeah. And that is where the real change will occur when these changes are sustainable and long lasting. Yes. I, you know, I, I've seen this um, on, in a number of conferences that I've gone to uh, starting towards like the back half of last year and into this year. Um, And I've seen on these, uh, in these conferences, they've had different tracks and panel sessions that have been focused around diversity and inclusion topics. Um, I, I recently was part of a panel um, back in February, and one of the requirements was that at least half of the people speaking on the on the panel had to be, um, you know, in a marginalized category, female or a person of color. Um, and I, you know, I I'm, I find it interesting. I'm I'm still kind of thinking and contemplating. Like, is this is this real? Like, is this is this really doing anything? Does it matter? Will they be doing it next year? Is it sustainable? I think that question of sustainability, when anti-racism is no longer a popular topic, will people still be doing it? And the jury's out on that, I think. Yeah, and so there's the other perspective of we still should preserve history, right? So change it, but acknowledge the history of where things stood before. Mm. What do you think about that perspective? And I'll give you another example. So many statues have been torn down, Confederate flags removed, and those things have been removed because now whatever entity or entity or organization has been uh, better educated or just knows more and does not no longer wants to represent that, represent whatever negative connotation came with that statue or that representation. And um but there is a side of, we still should know, we should, you can't erase history. You can't do this to every single thing that's out there. Where's your, what's your stance on that? So let, let me talk about books first, because I, you know, books are one of my great loves. I, my degree is in English. I, I believe that preserving the written word is really important. And it's, it's part of how we share ourselves, our culture, and our history from generation to the next. And so I think about a book like Huckleberry Finn, which I read as, you know, in high school at some point. Um, And, you know, the N-word is used throughout that book. And I believe the book has been taken off of library, you know, um, shelves and and removed from schools in various places because of of that problematic language. There are other books like that, right, where there's censorship there. And I, I am not a huge fan of censorship when it comes to books. I think it's really important for people to have access to the things, like to understand things in their historical context and not condone it, but like accept it for what it was, uh, a very time-bound piece of art. Um, I, think, I think that's part of us evolving. 
Um, so I, what I don't, what I liked about that, what Dr. Seuss Enterprises did is that they, they weren't being censored. They self-censored that I'm, I'm good with like self-censorship, but the idea that, you know, someone comes around and says that you got to take these books off the shelf or whatever. No, what you need to do is you need to change the way you teach it. You need to change the way we talk about it. We, we need to have a conversation about things that really happened because if you don't know your history, if you don't know where you're coming from, you're bound to repeat it, right? Now, when it comes to statues and monuments, I think that's, I, that's, that feels different to me than books. Um, you know, a statue or a monument is usually erected in honor of someone or something like an event or a person. And so when you see like, you know, Confederate statues and they're honoring, uh, you know, individuals who did like a horrible things, like to me, this is akin to having, you know, statues of Adolf Hitler in Germany, right? Like, why would we have that? That doesn't make sense. Like, that's not a man to celebrate. We need to right. learn about him. We need to learn what happened. But we're not going to erect a statue in his honor. So to me, erecting a statue to Robert E. Lee is akin to that. I know there may be people who listen to this podcast who disagree. That's just where I stand on it. This, this man, you know, I, I get that you may defend him and say, oh, it was about states' rights. And he just, you know, Virginia was his country, blah, 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 whatever. At the end of the day, it was about slavery. We all know that's what it was about. And he was defending that. And he led that army. And he was perpetuating a cause that enslaved, you know, just I, I, millions of people, Right. And, and, and perpetuated these atrocities and this horror. H how do you defend that? I, I don't know. It's like trying to whitewash Hitler. That, I really think it's the same thing there. So I, I don't know. What are your thoughts about the statues and monuments? I just want to say, tear them all down. No, <laughs> I, think, I, I, no I agree with your, exactly what you said, that, that having a statue in your name is honorable and you should be honored for doing thing, good things and reputable things, not for racism, right? Not right. for things that, th things that are done to destroy a group of people. And that's not honorable. So you don't deserve that statue. So I 100% agree. And I, I like your sentiment on uh, the books as well. You, we can't erase history. And I hope that's not what anyone is trying to do. And you have to still know uh, what has happened, but you have to talk about it differently and ensure that you are taking the stance of this is what happened, but it's, it was not right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, um, I happened upon an Instagram live that Austin Channing Brown was doing with another author named Rachel Ricketts. Now, um, Austin Channing Brown wrote a book several years ago called I'm Still Here. Uh, which I read last year. I didn't realize when I read it last year, she had written it several years prior um, because it hit the New York Times bestseller list last year for four weeks because of what happened, but because of the murder of George Floyd. And she was, she, she was running this um, Instagram live uh, with this other author, Rachel Ricketts, who's a, a activist and, um, you know, really uh, has written some books in this uh, in this area of racial equality, um, because Robin D'Angelo's new book, Nice Racism, was just promoted. Um, it's about to come out now. For those of you who recognize the name, Robin D'Angelo wrote a book called um, White Fragility. That's the book that you know all the white people have read. I include myself, right? This is the book that talks about um, sort of the 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 quote unquote benign version of racism that often exists where, you know, white people just, they literally can't handle anything that disturbs their racial equilibrium. And they just, you know, they, they cry and they yell and they get really upset because the worst thing that you could be called is a racist. And we've talked about this last season. That's not the worst thing you could be called, right? There's worse things. Um, so this new book is coming out, Nice Racism, and Austin Channing Brown was really negative about it. And I was a little taken aback because in many circles, um, white fragility is viewed as kind of like the Bible for how, what white people need to do to not be, you know, covertly racist. And I learned a lot from the book and I, there were things I agreed with and, and like, there were things I thought were a little off and, and didn't quite agree with, but I was surprised at her visceral response. And I watched, she, she had like a one hour 
live on this. I, I wanted to listen to it because I wanted to get the perspective of these two black women who were, were so against it. And this is what she said. She said, boy, don't white people like to talk about white books. And she talked about the, the systemic racism that's inherent within the publishing system. So her book came out three years ago. It only hit the New York Times bestseller list because a black man was murdered. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list for four weeks. She got her first ever six-figure royalty check as a result of that. In the meantime, this White Fragility book has been on the New York Times bestseller list. I, I looked it up. I want to say it's like 190 some weeks in a row. So you can imagine the money this woman is raking in right now. And she said that she does not believe white people. She says white people don't need to teach other white people. She, she, she fully questions those who teach anti white people who teach anti-racism for profit. She said, that is white supremacy. I was very taken about, I listened to her. I thought she had some really good arguments and I'm curious, what do you think about the idea of this white woman kind of setting herself up as this expert that, oh, the only way white people will ever listen uh, and, and change on the subject is if another white person explains it. And Austin Channing Brown said, if you're not going to listen to me as a black woman, you're not going to listen to anybody. You've already decided. What do you think? So Robin D'Angelo was saying that the only way to change the racism and do anti-racist work is by white people teaching other white people. She doesn't say that explicitly. It's sort of the subtext of everything she says. It's like, Hold up. Let me let me translate here for you white people and explain how you actually are racist and you're going to listen to me because I'm a white woman. She doesn't say it explicitly. It's just the subtext. And also another question before I respond. Austin Channing Brown, I understand she's a black woman. Rachel Ricketts, she who wrote the White Fragility book? Robin D'Angelo wrote the the okay. White Fragility okay. book and now is coming out with this new book Nice Racism. And gotcha. Austin Channing Brown takes particular issue with it because in Austin's book called I'm Still Here, she has a chapter called Nice White People. And it's a great chapter. So good. But she talks about exactly this, this sort of brand of benign racism, you know, where you are, you're actually super racist, but you think you're just a nice white person. And, and so she, she feels that we need to be listening to other people in the black community to be learning and, and understanding this, because that's the lived experience of those in that community. It's kind of like a man telling you, Essence, what it's like to give birth to a baby. He will never know what that's like. Yeah. So I think there is space for both perspectives. And I think both, both forms of communication need to happen for sustained success. So what I mean is, I think that there is a place for an oppressor to ask those oppressed upon what their perspective is, how they'd like to move forward. But there is also a space where, let's say, those committed to anti-racism and those not committed to anti-racism, they hear each other better than those who have been um, oppressed. Like, I, I don't think, I think that there's a space for white people to talk to white people, black people to talk to white people, the ones that are willing to listen and be engaged with that on both ends. And there's also a space for black people to talk to black people. So mm -hmm. I think there is a space for you to talk to your own. So, so there's lateral communication that needs to happen. And then there's communication that needs to happen with other races as well. Mm -hmm. So I disagree with Austin Channing Brown in that realm, because I think it, it needs to happen everywhere. And if Robin D'Angelo is saying it needs to be a one-way street and Austin Channing Brown is saying it needs to be a one-way street, I disagree. Okay. Now, the other thing though, Austin Channing Brown is saying that basically Robin D'Angelo, you are, and I, will, and I will quote, profiting off of the detriment of others, right? Yes. So she's profiting off our pain. Yes. And that's what Austin Channing Brown is talking about. Yes. However- that could be an assumption that Austin Channing Brown has. We don't know Robin D'Angelo's heart. And mm. it is not to blame her that she, she found the secret sauce mm. and it's working. So if the woman's heart is pure and she's able to impact and change lives for the better, 
then I don't think there's any criticism that belongs there. She just happens to be really successful at it. I don't, I don't think that that is something that she, she should be blamed for. But at the same time, it is really disturbing that all of the like top anti-racist books right now on the New York Times bestseller list are written by white people. Like that should concern us. Mm, and so like let's talk about what's what's going on in the publishing world that that's the case the fact that when black women in particular bring manuscripts forward to publishing houses they're not interested yeah and that becky is an example of so so i so you and i right so we came to this podcast because we knew that we were not always agree and that to me is an example of wanting to really change for the better. So if Robin D'Angelo hears Austin Channing Brown and Rachel Ricketts response, I think she should respond to that. I do too. And then she also, and, and if what she's saying and what you just said and what Austin Channing Brown and what you're saying is that you, you Robin D'Angelo are profiting off of a racist system Mm-hmm. that only highlights the success of white people. And if you really are committed to doing this work, Robin, then you need to call that out. Yes. And they said she could have had a black co-author and she didn't. Oh, she could so have included a person of color. And she, right, exactly. Yeah. She, she's the only author on that book, right? So there were opportunities that she could have been more collaborative and intersectional and she wasn't. Thank you for listening to The Heart of the Matter in Black and White. Please join us next time when we will be discussing racism in sports.